Okay. Y'all ready? Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Ve'ahavta et Adonai Eloecha, Ve'chol Levavecha, Uvechol Nefshecha, Uvechol Meodecha, Ve'ahavta La Reacha Kamocha. Amen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. These are the very words of God. Please be seated for my words and we will get started. I heard Ray Vanderlyn say that for years and years. And I think it's appropriate. We stand for God's words. When God speaks, we stand. Oh boy, do we stand. And when man speaks, go ahead and sit down. It's fine. He's not even in the same category. All right. This is one of my favorite units of all of them. And it's the rabbi disciple. Because you and I are called to be disciples of the rabbi Yeshua. And so... Wouldn't you love to know what it means to be a, uh, not a rabbi, but a disciple in the Hebrew world? And your thoughts about what a disciple must be, I'm guaranteeing you this is going to blow your mind at how different a disciple was in the mind of Jesus and his contemporaries. Guys, there was no other time in the history of Israel when the level of learning and practice of the Torah were more prevalent than in the first century. It's pretty cool because some skeptics, I've heard some skeptics say, if humans have existed for 380,000 years, that's when the first humans sort of sprouted and came out, uh, came about. Why did God wait so long, almost to the end of this humanity, to introduce his laws, his rules, his, his Old Testament, and then finally his Messiah. Why do that just 2,000 years ago? What about the first 378,000 years? Did that not matter? What about all those people? Do they just go to hell? And it's like, uh, if you have a biblical perspective of time, humans haven't been around for 380,000 years, but more like seven to 10. Okay, so in that case, God really comes right in the middle of, of human history to uh, uh, introduce his Messiah, but he starts his relationship with humans with the first man and the first woman. So there's two twin titans. What's a titan? The precursors to the God. How big is a titan? Pretty big. Okay, good. Uh, do the rest of you know about Greek mythology? Okay, so the twin titans of the Jewish world are synagogue, which is oddly enough a Greek word. Synagogue is a Greek word. Uh, it means uh, to gather together. And then bet midrash. Those are the twin titans that formed the central and dominant foundation in the culture of the Jews in the second temple period. This is the temple that was built by King Herod. Second temple period, that's when Jesus lived. In synagogue, Torah was read and expounded. In Bet Midrash, it was memorized 
and it was studied. Okay? Just remember that. What is a disciple and how do you make one? That is the question. Jesus taught his followers. Help me with the end of this verse. This is the last thing Jesus says in Matthew 28. Go into all the world and make disciples as of all nations. Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And you know what? I will be with you always. That's what Jesus said. Go and make disciples. Who is he talking to when he said that? The apostles. The disciples. How many of them? Probably 11 guys. Now, how old were these guys he's talking to? They're probably a lot younger than we ever thought. Sure. When do you become, when's, when's your bar mitzvah? When do you become a man legally? Oh, is it like 15? Age 12. 12, wow. Absolutely. That's when you become a man legally. You are now responsible. Wait, so how old do you think Judas was? Judas, I think he was 18, 19. Oh, no. Think about the maturity level 2,000 years ago. You matured a whole lot faster back then than you do today. You know what adolescence is considered today? 11 to 30. 11 years of age to 30. Can you imagine being 30 and somebody calling you an adolescent? And you're like, yeah, cool. I live with my mom in her basement. You know, I live in my mom's house. She does my laundry, makes my peanut butter and jelly sandwiches while I play video games. You are 30. So in, in the ancient world, a 12-year-old would have been a responsible young adult. It's so weird. It is so weird. But that's why you can have a tax collector that's 14, 15. He knows how to count. He has a job. He works for the, the, the government. And he's got to go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Those seven fish belong to Rome. So you didn't have to have a college education. So Jesus taught these 16, 17, 18-year-olds, as you go throughout the world, I want you guys to make disciples. Now, what do you need in order to make disciples? Thoughts, real quick. What do you need in order to make disciples? Ha <laughs> Say that again. What kind of teachers? Okay. So you're talking master teachers. I think you're right. I think you need master teachers. The master disciple model was extremely effective in the late second temple period and early rabbinic Judaism. The word disciple, it's a good translation, but it does not capture the richness, the fullness of the meaning of, how do you say this, Abigail? Talmid. Talmid, that's right. A Talmid and a disciple, okay? In our minds, we talked about this earlier, a disciple is a student and it's a learner. It's somebody that, you know, wants to know what the teacher knows. Many of you did not choose your teacher's you barely had a chance to choose your classes, but you get the teacher they give you. And if you like the teacher, great. If you don't, too bad. You still have to take that class and get that information in your head. Now a Talmud 
This is one who is open to change. Somebody that is actively seeking to learn how to live life to the fullest in the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. A Talmud is actively seeking how to live life to the fullest in the kingdom of God. And he will do anything to find a master teacher that can show him how to live life in the kingdom. Today, we have this idea of a student. It's somebody that goes to class, they take notes, they, they, they take tests, they, they try to get a grade, they get a good grade point average. That is a student. But that is sadly also the picture that we conjure up when we read the Gospels. They were following Jesus around and Jesus would say, all right, I'm going to have a sermon here. We're going to call it the Sermon on the Mount. I'm sorry, Jesus. What was that? The Sermon on the what? Sermon on the Mount. Now, go ahead and skip down the line. Go ahead, semicolon. Sermon on the Mount. This is chapter five. And we'll start with verse one. Okay. And everybody's taking notes. This is not what the... Nobody had a pencil. Nobody had a paper anywhere. Um, Ray Vanderlyn. You've heard me talk about him. He said, a student wants to know what the teacher knows but a disciple wants to finish it. Be what the teacher is. I doubt any of you want to be what I am. <laughs> I'm a high school teacher. Um, maybe you do. I praise God and bless God if you do want to be a high school teacher. I certainly didn't want to be a high school teacher. In fact, I got a degree that would allow me to teach in college because I made a vow. I swore I would never teach high school. And God, silently laughing in heaven, says, oh, really? We'll see about that, exactly. And so, lesson learned, don't ever promise God that you'll never do X or that you'll always do Y because God loves to go and just flip that around on you. All right. Um, the sage or rabbi was known as one who could answer a question in any area of the Bible. He could answer, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. He could answer any question in the world um, because he had complete knowledge of the Bible and the oral Torah. What's the oral Torah? It's the explanation of the written Torah. So you could ask a rabbi, a master teacher, any question in the world. Hey, I got a question about biology. And he says, biology? Go for it. Lay it on me. You say, okay, so how does this and that, and what does this look like, and why is it like that? And the rabbi could actually answer that question because he had complete knowledge of the Torah and the oral Torah. Physiology. How does stuff work, rabbi? Well, let me tell you. Here's how I think things work. What about rocks? What are rocks? Why are rocks the way they are? Ah, ge uh, geology. You want to talk geology? Yeah. Well, I can talk geology. I'm a rabbi. You know what I mean? Like, you could ask this guy anything. Now, a Talmud, they could answer any question in their specific area of learning. What's your specific area of learning? Where do you feel like you are most trained? You're best trained. You have the most knowledge. Math, science, history. English, Espanol, si, okay. Um, apprenticing, I want to share with you a story 
about an apprentice. Now, this is from a book. If you guys want to know more about this Hebrew root stuff, I highly, highly, highly recommend a book by a lady named Lois Teverberg. And let me see if I can uh, give you the, other, the name of the other person. Uh, Ann Spangler and Lois Teverberg. All right, it's called Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus. Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus. I'm just going to read a couple pages out of this book, okay? To follow a rabbi meant something other than sitting in a classroom, absorbing his lectures. Rather, it involved a literal kind of following in which disciples often traveled with, lived with, and imitated their rabbis. Learning not only from what they had said, but from what they did. For their reactions to everyday life as well as from the manner in which they lived. The task of the disciple was to become as much like the rabbi as possible. This approach to teaching is much more like a traditional apprenticeship than a modern classroom. Around the world and for thousands of years, apprenticeship traditions have been largely unchanged. Westerners, that's us, are hardly aware of this very different but surprisingly effective way of teaching. Consider the experience of Anj Sabin Peter, an accomplished potter who recently served a six-month apprenticeship under Masaki Shibata, a well-known Japanese potter. Before journeying to Japan, Anj himself, or Anj imagined herself studying with the aged craftsman, an artist she had long admired. She envisioned herself shaping beautiful pottery on his wheel, his decades of skill sharpening her own expertise, aware that his apprentices usually served for four years but impatient about taking too much time away from her work, she hoped a short tutorial would suffice. At the start of her apprenticeship, Anj knew little to nothing of an ancient Japanese tradition that Masaki Shibata would have been well aware of, the tradition of becoming an uhideshi, an apprentice to a skilled craftsman. To learn a craft, a teenage boy would become adopted into his master's household, living as a member of the family during his apprenticeship and participating in every aspect of the life of the home and of the shop. He would have much more to learn than just how to throw and glaze pottery and would begin by performing menial tasks, including housework. The boy had to learn to do everything in just the right way. Only after years of apprenticeship would the uhideshi be trusted to throw the pots that the master craftsman would embellish with his designs and sign with his famous name. You cannot separate life from work, Shibata told Anj, his new apprentice, one day. The way you do the most insignificant activity in your daily life will reflect in your work. Then he sent her to the rice fields to dig for clay instead of inviting her to sit down at his wheel. Her pride chafed at not being asked to demonstrate her own skill. In fact, Shibata did not allow her to throw even one piece of pottery during her six-month stay in Japan. One day over lunch, Shibata's wife confided, When you came to us, you were like a fully grown tree with big branches. We have to cut those branches for something new to be able to grow. But all Anj felt was the cutting. Still, as she toiled at her humble chores, she snatched every chance to watch the master potter at work. Returning home, she felt deflated and defeated, afraid that her six months in Japan had been a complete waste. But when she sat down at her wheel, 
she began to sense a subtle difference. Something had changed. Then, as the kiln door opened on her new work, she marveled at the result. Without knowing it, she had been absorbing a new way of doing things. Her eyes had gained an aesthetic sense for distinguishing excellent work from merely acceptable work. Thanks to her time with Masaki Shibata, Anj Peter's approach to her craft had been transformed. Delightedly, she caressed each new vessel, admiring how the influence of her Japanese master had blended beautifully with her own personality to transform each of her new creations. Okay. It does, it does. It sounds exactly, exactly what Mr. Miyagi did to Daniel-san. Go out and wax the car. What? I want to wax the car. Go out and, uh, you know, put the stain on the, on the patio. Paint the fence. Oh, oh, up and down. This is exactly, exactly. We just have no idea in this country about apprenticeships like that. We want to pay for something and get it done now. And by the end of the week, I want to have my permit. Then I want to have my license. I want to take all my driving you know, stuff online. And in a few hours, I want to be able to go take my test. That is American. We are efficient. All right. That is Apprentice. Now, where did the rabbis develop their ideas for disciples? Do you think they looked to scripture for their ideas on discipleship? Let me ask you a question. Is rain wet? Yes. yes. Okay. Well, then the, then the rabbis definitely looked to scripture for their model of discipleship, especially in whom? What two men did they look to to get this model of what a rabbi and a disciple should be? Anybody think? Maybe Moses, and who would Moses' disciple would have been? Who would that have been? Joshua, Joshua, right? Moses, Joshua. But that's not right. They did not look to Moses and Joshua. They looked to two other men. Really similar names. There you go, Elijah and Elisha. Okay. Yeah. Elijah was known for being one of Israel's greatest prophets. He performed amazing miracles. Do you guys remember any of the miracles Elijah performed? Uh, I remember Mount Carmel. Oh, yeah. Called down fire from heaven. Elijah. So chariots of fire and horses of fire came. And, and it's funny because we think they, he rode those chariots back up to heaven. That is not what the Bible says at all. It's weird. Uh, we'll get there. We're going to read it in just a second. Okay. He performed, he, he raised a widow's son. Elijah raised a widow's son from the dead. He called down fire from heaven. He made a pitcher of oil not run out. And he made a jar of flour that only had a handful of flour last for months. It's like he multiplied bread with just a handful. I don't know if you know anybody else that did that. It's weird. Isn't that crazy? They went and got flasks and oil jars from all their neighbors and they put them around her house and she kept pouring this little bitty thing of oil and it would fill up an entire drum of oil and then she'd go over here and pour up that one. It'd fill up all these things. And it's, it's like from the little... From something to start, 
he was able to multiply that a thousand, five thousand times over. Almost like Jesus could do with the fish and the, and the bread. He started with, with a source, but was able to multiply that thousands of times over. Widow's son. Okay. Um, now, Elijah had unbelievable. Do you know what his name means by, by the way? No. Elijah. Elijah. My God is Yah. As in Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. What does Elisha mean? My God is Shah. No. It means El Yisha. God delivers. Yisha. Can you hear Yeshua in Yisha? Jesus means God's salvation, Yeshua, right? God's deliverance, God's salvation. So El Yisha, God delivers. So you have God, my God is Yah, teaching God delivers, okay? Now, Elijah had some unbelievable adventures and mountaintop experiences when no doubt he felt like he was walking side by side with the Lord. He outran a chariot. I don't remember how many miles, but he, he turned into the flash. He really did. So he's walking side by side with the Lord thinking, man, mountaintop experiences. I just called down fire from heaven. Just killed 450 prophets of Baal. Like I am the man. And then right after that, he has some of the lowest moments in his life when he felt like his world was crashing down. He goes and he hides in this cave under Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. And uh, complains to God. He said, I'm so scared I'm going to die. Jezebel's going to kill me. So after one of those moments, God speaks to him and tells him to anoint Elisha as his successor. So turn to 1 Kings 19. You guys are going to like this story. 1 Kings 19 and verses 19. Easy enough. You know what? I feel like I need to do... um, Let's, let's bow our heads for a second. I got I to gotta ask the Lord something. All right, Lord, I just want to tell you, first of all, as I look out and I see destiny, and I know we've been praying for her dad, and God, I just want to thank you for the beautiful thing that you've done by bringing him home. Thank you that his surgery was successful. We're sorry that he had the infection, but we're so blessed and so grateful to you that you have healed him and that you've taken care of the infection. And Lord, we just pray that you do continue to take care of the, infec- uh, the infection. Uh, God, I just want to declare that I could not do this today. I can't do anything today. I'm a terrible teacher today if you don't give me everything I'm going to need. I feel like a little kid who's holding up a paper plate that's empty, just asking you to put something on it. Just fill it today, God. That's, that's, that's how worthless we are as your vessels if you don't fill us. And as I'm thinking about Elijah and you filling that jar with that oil and that flour, and you just multiplying it thousands of times over, God, you have done that and will do that. And we need you to do that in our lives. Would you fill us? Can we be your jars of oil today that we might anoint others that they would say, I feel like I have been in the presence of God. Now we know that's us because you filled us with you. So fill us with you, Father. Overflow us with you. Multiply us thousands of times over. We love you. We need you. We declare our dependence upon you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Ooh, I was just feeling like puny and just deflated, you know? But now, power. All right, so let's look at first, ni- uh, <laughs> first Kings 19, verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, 
who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Now Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? It's kind of a weird thing to say. And he returned from following him, took the yoke of oxen, sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Kind of a weird story. Sorry, this isn't the Church of Fire one. That's coming up next. Got ahead of myself here. Now turn with your finger in 1 Kings 19. Turn to Luke chapter 9. You're going to be, you're going to love this. Luke chapter 9. Guys, I am here to tell you, I don't think the New Testament makes any sense at all without the Old. You try to teach the New Testament without the Old, and you've got to do some fancy acrobatics, honestly. Now read Luke chapter 9, verse 57 with me. 57 Uh, through 62. Listen to this. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. By the way, that's Jewish. What did he actually say to him? I want to be your your Talmud, right? I want to be your disciple. That's what Talmud do. They follow the rabbi. So when he says, I will follow you wherever you go, he said, I want to be your disciple. And Jesus says, cool. Uh, Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Yeah, that's kind of harsh. To another, he said, Jesus said, follow me. What did he just say? Be my disciple. Be my Talmud. Good. Be my Talmud. But he said, Lord, sir, don't think of that Lord as Lord God. No, he just said, sir, uh, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord. I want to be your Talmud, sir. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Huh? Who else wanted to say farewell first to his parents? Elisha. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What did he just tell him? What did he just tell that guy that said, I'll be your disciple? But first, let me go say bye to my family. Are you fit if you put your hand to the plow and look back? So did he tell him, sure, come on, be my disciple or no? If you're going to be needing to go home, then no. Kind of looks that way, doesn't it? And I'm here to tell you, we cannot understand the New Testament without the old. All three of those have everything to do with Elijah. Did you know that? He's making references to Elijah with all three of them. All three of them. What's the first guy do? Hey, I want to be your disciple. What does Jesus say? Foxes Foxes have holes. Okay. Um, Why say that? What does that even mean? 
Okay, good. Do you know where Elijah slept? Caves? Where else? Next to... He was. He was sent into the wilderness to wander. He laid his head under trees. He slept next to brooks. Who fed him? Ravens fed him. He didn't even go get his own food. Where, where did he call home? Wherever he happened to be tired and fall down that night. That's a, that's a reference to Elijah. I'll be your disciple. I'll be your Elisha. Because I see that you're Elijah. And he goes, oh, really? You know that this isn't going to be easy, right? I'm on my way to go die. You're still good. And the guy's like, oh, let me think about that. Next guy, Jesus says, you follow me. Let me first go and bury my father. Now think about that. That's kind of a weird thing to say. Is, is his father dead? So it, it almost sounds like he's not dead yet, but he's fixing to die. And you, you know, he's going to die soon. Let me bury my father first and like take care of all of his affairs. What if he is dead? It's kind of weird that this guy's out walking around following all these people. It's like, yeah, my dad's dead. Let me go bury him first. Sorry, I just, I had a break and I saw you walking. Your dad just died. It's, it's just kind of weird if his dad's dead laying there or if they're in the middle of a funeral week of mourning. Like, it's just kind of a weird thing. What does let the dead bury their own dead mean? <sighs> okay, think about this for a second. What do the living have to do or have in common with the dead. 